Good morning, Veritas Church. How are we doing today? Good. Glad to hear it. That's more energy than this room typically has at 8 o'clock. That's great. You guys are awake, had your coffee this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell. I'm on staff here with our college ministry, the Salt Company. And I just got to say, one part of my job that I didn't anticipate, it's not like in my job description, is apparently I am the Salt Company wedding officiant. Um, Yeah, which like kind of comes with the territory, right? Young adults, college ministry, they love Jesus, they love each other. Before you know it, everybody's getting married. But I didn't kind of grow up in this Christian culture where two young people fall in love and they're kind of like, why not? Let's get married. And now I'm kind of there. And I think one of the hurdles that I overcome with these young couples that are looking to get married when they're 19, 20 years old, Ellie and I start talking to them about expectations, right? It's, it's this idea of, hey, what do, you, what do you hope marriage is going to look like? And oftentimes, you know, it's like, it's like sleepovers with my best friend every night. And the dudes are like, you know, my purity issues are going to be gone because intimacy is not an issue. And I'm like, hold up here, brother. All right, I'm going to open up to Ephesians 5. Here's your job. Love your wife like Christ loved the church laying your life down for. How's that sound? And he's like, wait a second. Like, expectations are hard, but we need to set expectations. Otherwise, people are prone to be discouraged. I even think about my wife and I, you know, when we were engaged, it was like, hey, we're not going to argue, right? All these, all these couples that have all these arguments, we're not going to be like that. And how do people ever outgrow the stage of cuddling, right? Like, we'll never do that. And before you know it, honeymoon phase is over, right? You're arguing over family holidays. Who are we going to spend time with? Who are we not going to spend time with? It's 2 a.m. and I'm telling Ellie, you're on my half of the bed, right? (laughs) Stay on your side. And in some ways it's like, man, if our expectation was don't argue and cuddle all the time, we're left discouraged. You know what it's like to be discouraged, don't you? Like, on on a light note, sometimes it's like, man, college students, you thought you had an easy class, and you look at your syllabus, and before you know it, it's like, I have to read five books in eight weeks. That's not easy. Or you look at your sports team, Hawks fans, you're like, man, our offense, wow. But on a heavier note, we know what it's like to be discouraged in things that really matter. When you think about your future and you're like, oh, I'm going to grow old and I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to play with my kids. And then you get a diagnosis. You're sick. Or you begin parenting your kids and you're like, man, we're going to raise them up in the way of the Lord. And now they're teenagers that are running away from God. We know what it's like to be discouraged. And I'm afraid many of us, as we come in the room today, when we think about our faith walk, we're discouraged. I mean, even if you do not follow Jesus, you look out at this world and you see injustice, you see disease, you see death, and you've got to be thinking, if there's a God up there, what's happening? Like, I'm discouraged. But the reality is, for many of us in this room, 
we do believe in Jesus. We've had an encounter with Jesus. We, we have seen him and we have said, God, you are big. You are beautiful. You are amazing. You are my prize. You are my treasure. But that's not the end of the story. Before long, you're discouraged. You're back in the sin struggle that you thought you conquered months ago. You stopped reading the Bible that you once were in awe with. You've even disconnected from a community of believers that were once so influential in your faith, and you're discouraged. But the reality is, there's more life to live. As long as there's breath in your lungs, there's more life to live. And so the question we have to ask today, Veritas, is how do we not stay discouraged? How do we not stay a discouraged people that are characterized by heartache, but rather be a people that are filled with hope? That's where we're going today. I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Genesis 9. Genesis 9, and I want to kind of set the stage for you, put you in the place of the original audience. Imagine you're Israel. You know, Moses is writing to the Israelites. They've recently seen God lead them out of Egypt, part the Red Sea, like lead them to freedom, and the Red Sea crashes in on their enemies. Their enemies are destroyed. And then they look at this text in Genesis and they see Noah, a man who has extended grace by God just like them. And he builds an ark to sustain the flood. And what happens? God destroys evil. He destroys the rest of creation and saves Noah and his family, this faithful remnant. And then you read these words beginning in Genesis 9, Starting in verse 1, says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sounds familiar, right? Genesis 1? Okay. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Like you're Israel and you just read these verses or hear these words taught over you. And what has to come to mind is Genesis 1 and 2. It's almost this like reestablishment, like post flood reestablishing of Eden. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The animals are subject to you. I've given you the food to eat, but. Here's one restriction. Sounds familiar, right? In this case, don't eat the blood of the animals. God upholds the fact that humanity is created in his image and again gives the charge to multiply and fill the earth. Now, if you're Israel, what do you think is going on in your head? What are your expectations at this point? You have to be thinking, this is it. This is the end of the story, right? God dealt with evil once and for all. It's gone. 
Sin is no more. Look at what he's done. Look how faithful he is to preserve Noah and the faithful remnant. But is that what happens? Check this out. We got to go back. Look at Genesis 8, verse 20. This is Noah, fresh off the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. It starts with Noah stepping off the ark, building an altar, and making a pleasing sacrifice to God. But without even flipping the page of scripture, you look at Genesis 9, starting in verse 20, and here's what Noah's doing. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Are you serious? From a pleasing sacrifice to God as an act of worship to drunk and naked in your sin and in your shame. That's humanity. And that's not just Noah's story. That's our story. We know what it's like to be people who have received grace from God, people who have tasted and seen the immeasurable grace of God, and in a moment's time, we turn away from him. We reject him. We stiff-arm God. We're discouraged at our own faithfulness. At least we should be, right? For some of us in this room, you follow Jesus for decades, And yet you still find yourself running back to the same old sin problems. You're still repenting over your anger, your idolatry of control, your greed, and your discontentment. You've got to be discouraged. And for most of us in this room, myself included, we're going to walk out these doors this morning. Hopefully, as people who have encountered God, people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we have sung praises unto King Jesus. But before we lay our heads on our pillows at night, we're going to say, wow, I'm prone to wander. I was praising God at 8 o'clock this morning, but by 8 p.m., I was discontent again. I was frustrated with my house. I was frustrated with my kids. I was groaning about the job I have to go to tomorrow. Though you've seen the grace of God, the reality of sin remains. And I think Paul actually talks about this in Romans 7. Verses are going to be on the screen here. This is a man who has tasted and seen the grace of God. From a killer of Christians to a church planter, he knows what it's like to be saved by grace through faith. But here's what he says in Romans 7. In verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Further down, verse 19, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. By verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
this idea of Jesus coming and he, he deals with the power of sin. But if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, you understand that the presence of sin is still real in your life. And you're discouraged. We're discouraged by our own ability to live for God, but that's not it either. I don't know about you, but I think anymore, sometimes we can talk people into following Jesus by saying, hey, giving, give your life to Jesus and everything will be better. And on one hand, that statement can be true, right? It's like, wow, Jesus actually satisfies your soul. But maybe you've listened to the lie that once you follow Jesus, everything is just going to be great all the time. And that actually hasn't been your expectation. Rather than, you know, sunshine and unicorns and butterflies and frolicking through the garden, you're like, wow, there's more conflict in my life. People are either persecuting me or the old friend group I used to hang out with, they're disassociating with me. There's more family turmoil. Maybe you've even faced more physical suffering since following Jesus. It's not just you're discouraged within you. You look out at your life and you're like, wow, this is not going the way I had planned. And I think one of our other struggles, like Israel, is we're discouraged by other Christians' faithfulness. Right? You look at a guy like Noah who is supposed to be this like exemplary model of faithfulness, a man who found favor in the eyes of God, and now he's drunk and naked. And I just have a feeling there's many of us in this room who you're discouraged because of the lack of faithfulness of other Christians. Maybe you come from a past of church hurt, right? You've been a part of a church that condemned you, pushed you to the outsides, didn't extend to you any grace, said harsh things to you that actually created turmoil in your life. And maybe even worse, you have been tainted by moral failure of a Christian leader, perhaps a pastor, right? You look at a guy like Noah and you're like, wow, you're supposed to be leading the flock and setting an example in faithfulness and you've seen a pastor morally fail. And I just wanna say, that is right reason for us to be discouraged. Right? When we look at the church and it looks more like the world than it does the church, when we look at men who are supposed to be loving and leading the flock, who are chasing immorality and hiding their sin, that deserves a level of discouragement. And I just want to say, if that's been your experience, I am sorry. That is not right. But I don't want to just stay there. I want to talk to you like you're Israel like you're the original audience and say, as discouraged people, where do we go? What do we look at? If, if we can't look around and find faithfulness, if we can't even look to leaders for faithfulness, where do we look? And it's actually the keynote part of our text here today. Genesis 9, starting in verse 8. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. 
And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Where do you look when you're discouraged, Veritas? Do you look at your faithfulness? Do you look at the faithfulness of other people around you? Do you look at how well the world is going? Do you look at your leaders and say, how faithful are they? God is telling us here, there is but one faithful one. There is one faithful one. Who is it? It is the Lord, right? Who is the one that's making this covenant? You even think about the word covenant, a strong and sincere promise which is never to be broken, made between God and his people, a strong and sincere promise that is never meant to be broken between God and his people. Who's making the covenant? Who's establishing the covenant? Who's remembering the covenant? You don't even see Noah talk here. Okay, if I were you and I had a pen or a highlighter with my Bible, I would go to these words that God said, and every time he says, I, or I will, or I make, I would just highlight it or circle it and understand here, God is the faithful one. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He is the one that promises to never send the flood again, and in his kindness, he gives a sign, a sign of a rainbow. And in many ways, you think about Israel they actually would see rainbows, right? And they could look up and they could remember God's covenant. But God is saying here, when I see the rainbow, I'm gonna remember my covenant. Even when you forget the covenant, I'm gonna remember it. And this is important for Israel to understand that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Because if you keep reading in your Bible and you learn anything about Israel's future, here's what you're going to find out. Israel fails. Israel's leaders fail. They fail miserably. They turn from the God that they loved. They reject him. But what does God do? He upholds his covenant. And I just want to say to you, Veritas, your flesh is going to fail you you're going to turn back to sinful ways even when you think you never would. Your spouse is going to fail you. 
your friends are going to fail you. This church, if you stick around long enough, we will fail you. Your leaders may fail you, but God never will. God never will fail you. He is the covenant-keeping God that is ever faithful. And though sin speaks, yes, sin exists, yes, sin does not get the final word. As Israel looks at Genesis 9, they encounter this God. They're actually calling to mind that God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And they're looking back at his covenant, God's covenant with Noah as the first covenant ever made and they've seen it fulfilled. It's meant to be this fresh reminder that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And so just as God had done in the past, he is going to be at work restoring fellowship with his people, specifically his chosen nation in Israel. And Veritas, well, we have the gift. Yes, we get to look up after a rainy day that's then followed by sunshine, we get to look up and we get to see the rainbow too. And it's meant to be a fresh reminder to us that we have a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, but that is but a shadow of the covenant that we live in light of today. The covenant of Jesus Christ, this new covenant that Jesus would come, he would live the life that you never could that he would walk up the hill called Golgotha, that he would take the nails that you deserve, that he would be stripped, whipped, beaten, and killed, that he would become the atoning sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God, and that he would rise again victoriously to say, this is what it looks like to live in light of covenant. If you believe in me, you are not guilty. You are declared righteous. Right, the Bible would say that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the new covenant. And one of the sweetest things, okay, as you look at this text, this covenant is given to Noah even before he gets drunk and is left naked. And in the same way, Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner. While you were an enemy of God, Christ went up on that cross and he died for you, not because you measure up, not because you are good enough, but because he is faithful to his word to keep the covenant that he makes. And I can't help but think back to Paul in Romans 7, right? He's like, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I should do. Wretched man that I am. You know, what hope is there for a guy like me? And then you get to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God keeps his word. He is true to his covenant. He will keep his promise even when we fail. And it gives us a foretaste of how this story ends. I want you to read with me. Chapter 9, verse 22 in Genesis confusing. I'll explain it a little bit. Okay. And Ham, the father of Canaan, this is one of Noah's sons, saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers, they took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness 
of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, when he sobered up and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said this, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. It's a confusing text, okay? And there's a lot of conspiracies. There's a lot of thoughts about what did Ham do? Why did he get cursed? What's happening here? And that's really not the point of that text, You can go, you can study, you can look into any of the commentaries you want. Here's the point that God is trying to make. Ham did not act on God's behalf. Because if you go back to Genesis 3, Adam is naked. What does God do? He clothes Adam and Eve. And Ham clearly does not act on God's behalf. He goes and he shames Noah to his brothers. Maybe even doing more. We don't know. But here's what his brothers did. They acted on behalf of God. They took the blanket. They didn't shame their dad and his nakedness, and they covered him up. They acted on God's behalf. And here's what Noah does. When he sobers up, he looks at his sons, and he says, Ham, here's what I'm doing. I'm cursing your children. And you might think, Why didn't he just curse Ham? Why did he curse Canaan? And that's where you have to understand where Israel's at and what's going on in their context. They're about to take the promised land. Who lives in the promised land? Any guesses? The Canaanites. The Canaanites are in the promised land. And you might not know this, but Israel comes from the line of Shem. And so As you look at this text, here's what God is saying through Moses to Israel. The Canaanites are cursed, the people that currently inhabit the promised land, and you are blessed. You are blessed because you are righteous. You come from the righteous line. And just as Israel was given this hope, you're going to take the promised land. The promised land is yours. Here's what's going to happen. God promises you and me this. Heaven is yours. Heaven is yours. Sin and evil will be destroyed. They will be done away with. Heaven is yours, Veritas. Cling to your covenant-keeping God. And how can we say that? Like, how can we say so confidently that heaven is ours? It seems a little arrogant, right? Well, we don't boast in our own morality, We don't look at how good we are. We say, no, God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Because as you look at this text, you get to the last couple verses, what happens to Noah? He dies, okay? At 950 years old, I feel like that has to be part of his punishment, living that long. That sounds miserable, right? I'm hoping 80. Not trying to be morbid, but I'm like, hey, Heaven is my home. I'm not trying to be here longer than I need to be. 950 years. And what is Noah remembered as? I mean, if you look at this text, it's like, this dude is a drunk. 
he got drunk, he sobered up, he cursed one of his sons and he died. That's what you could get if you just read Genesis 9. That's awful. But if you keep reading your Bible, if you get to Hebrews 10 and 11, here's what it says. The righteous shall live by faith. You know who lives by faith? You know who's included in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11? Noah. So he's not actually remembered by his drunkenness. He's remembered by his faith. Like I had said earlier, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Noah is not remembered as a drunk. He is remembered as a righteous man only by faith. And so I just want to say to you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, if you are in Christ, God does not look at you and see your sin. He looks at you and he sees the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He sees the perfect work of Jesus Christ because he is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And I want to say, your sin is out to accuse you. Your sin is trying to scream to you that you have a different identity, but Jesus acquits you. Though your sin calls you guilty, Jesus says you are not guilty. You are declared righteous. And so as Israel, looking at this text, both in the moment, preparing to take the promised land, and for centuries, right, looking back, decade after decade, generation after generation to remember, what do we do when we're discouraged? Where do we look? How do we fight against discouragement? You could say it this way. Fight against discouragement by focusing on God's covenant. Fight against discouragement by focusing on God's covenant. Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of even just the faithfulness of the people around you, off of your circumstances going right, and fix your eyes back on the promises of God. That's how you're meant to fight against discouragement. To look at the one who is faithful, who will never fail you. And so I don't have a long list of things that we need to do to begin to apply this this week. Okay, really simply, number one, you need to actually recognize that you are in need of this covenant of the cross. As you look at your own discouragement to say, wow, I cannot save myself. The Bible would tell us that God looks out at his creation. He says, where are the righteous? There is not but one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God to say, wow, there is not but one righteous one except for Christ who lived the life you couldn't, died the death you should have, and rose again so that all who call on his name, all who believe in him in faith would be declared righteous. Have you done that? And if you have, here's what you need to do. Number two, you need to refresh yourself in the gospel. I've heard it said before, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. You don't outgrow the gospel. And if you're anything like me, you actually struggle with this. Several weeks ago, I was up in Wisconsin with my wife on a baby moon. Who knew that was a thing? We took advantage of it. On a baby moon, and I'm reading this book called Deeper. It's actually in our resource center. 
real change for real sinners. And I came to this realization, I'm like the Galatians. And though I understand God saved me in my deepest, darkest moment in 2013, I have deceived myself into thinking that I'm going to finish what he started. And Paul tells the Galatians, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, (laughs) who are you to continue in the flesh what God started in the spirit? I was wrecked, undone to say, God, who am I to continue in the flesh what you started in the spirit? The gospel does not just save me in March of 2013. It sustains me in September of 2022. I need you every day. I need your faithfulness every day. Because even when I am faithless, you are faithful. I needed to remind myself of that. And so maybe this week, that's what you need to do. You need to jump into a text like Ephesians 2 or Titus 3, and you need to read it over and over and over and over and over. And read it until your affections are stirred until you actually believe that this didn't just happen for you one time back then, but it's happening to you right now. That you still need God to be the covenant-keeping God, because if not, you're doomed. Okay, and lastly, here's what I want you to do. I want you to respond in worship. Honestly, I just, I looked at this text and I was like, man, what would it look like if we just all lived with an off-the-ark perspective, right? You're fresh off the ark. You just understood that God saved you and destroyed all the evil. You step off the ark, here's what you do. You build an altar and you make a sacrifice to God. It's like Noah's natural response is to say, I cannot help but worship this God. And there's actually two things you need to do if you want to worship God appropriately. Number one, you have to look at the atoning sacrifice. That's Jesus, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that does away with the wrath of God, number one. But then you need to copy what Paul says in Romans 12. Here's your appropriate response in worship. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices unto God. Say, God, if you have died for me, I will live for you. This is my only appropriate response. And as I think about what it looks like to live this out, Veritas, the word that came to mind for me was free. Free. Free from self-condemnation, number one. To get out of your own head and to stop condemning yourself when Jesus says, there is therefore no condemnation for you. If Jesus can forgive you, you can forgive yourself. The covenant was made knowing that you were gonna fall. You gotta throw yourself back on the grace of Jesus Christ. And number two, free from the worry and fear and discouragement of what's going on around us. To stop looking within for faithfulness, to stop even looking around for an example of faithfulness, but just to look up and to say, God, you are faithful. You are a faithful God. And with that, you can be trusted, and I'm going to live my life worshiping you because you are worth it. Amen? Let me pray for us as we respond. Yeah, Father, you are the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. I look at Noah in this text, God, and I see so much of myself. Quick to worship on one end and so prone to wander the next. But in the middle, God, to see your covenant, 
that you are the one making the promise, that you are the one sustaining and remembering the promise even when Noah forgot you. God, that's us. So I pray that you would set people free from self-condemnation this morning. You would set people free from trying to measure up, that you would set people free from the discouragement that just characterizes their life as they look within and look around and see faithlessness. Jesus, would they fix their eyes on you as the author and perfecter of faith who perfectly embodied faithfulness. Jesus, you went to the cross, you died and you rose again that we might know you and live with you forever. So help us respond in worship because you alone are worth it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.